want to start today by uh, talking a little bit about Avengers Endgame. Now, it's been a little while now, so I think it's fair for me to just, just talk about it. I have to worry about any kind of spoilers or anything. Well, it's too late. Like, you <laughs> should have seen it by now. If you haven't seen it, you don't, you don't care. So, um, There's one thing about the movie that I really, really liked. It's probably the thing that I liked the most. And um, it's what they did with um, Thor's character, you know, the uh, Chris Hemsworth's char- character, you know, Thor, uh, in the movie. And, and I, I love it when they go, I don't know if you guys remember, I know probably a lot of you have seen it, if not all of you. And uh, they go to, like, New Asgard, you know, it's like in Norway or something, I don't know, it's probably in over there. And they go and, uh, you know, Rocket and Hulk, they're, they're going to Thor's house, and apparently Thor's you know, been in a depressed state. You know, they're told this before. They go to him. I remember this is like Chris Hemsworth, right? He's it's like a big, like ripped dude. He's got his own fitness thing, by the way. I don't know if you, I don't know if you knew that. I saw this on YouTube. I was very tempted to purchase this fitness app just because Chris Hemsworth was the one who was behind it, but it was too expensive, so I didn't get it. But um, you know, it's it's like it's it's him. Right, and then they have the scene where they go to him, and the camera slowly pans up from the bottom, and then, you know, you see it. Right, it's like, it's like Fat Thor. You know, like he has this, he has this gut. Right, and and it's kind of funny, and you laugh at it at first. It's just humorous to see someone who is supposed to be so physically fit in bad shape you immediately think, I feel a little bit better about myself, right? If you're sitting and watching it, you think, look, there's a Halloween costume I can wear. And, um, and then it gets a little serious, like, because they actually kind of explore what's happened here. And obviously, Thor is, like, actually depressed because he feels like he's failed, because he feels like he should have killed Thanos, you know, in the other movie. And it, it, it sounds ridiculous as I'm talking about it, right, that he, he feels, you know, like that I'm talking about something real in a, in a world that is so fantastically unreal. And yet at that moment when he's, like, depressed, he gets serious, right? They, they say Thanos, and he's like, oh, we don't say that name in here. And he gets really seriously emotional. And I felt like that was so... It was such a relatable moment in a movie that's completely unrelatable because we all know what that's like, right? We all know what it's like to have some kind of expectation, whether that's on someone else or maybe even more importantly on ourselves, that we have for ourselves to go unmet, right? To be disappointed, even more than that, to be, to feel like a disappointment, right? Like we all know what it's like to be at the emptied bottom of, you know, the proverbial barrel or a wallet or a shot glass or a gallon of ice cream, feeling lost and confused. Some of us remember what that was like. Some of us, we know what that's like right now. That's how we feel. And so Thor's whole arc, right? Eventually he ends up time traveling to the past to talk to his dead mother. And um, the line is, you know, when he goes to his mom and he's like, oh, you know, I feel like I was supposed to be this king and this warrior and, you know, I've totally failed. And her line 
one of the lines you know, that I really like from the movie, she says, everyone fails at being who they're supposed to be. The measure of a person, of a hero, is how well they succeed at being who they are. And I love that line. I loved it when I heard it. I still love it, although I would make one slight adjustment to it, which we will get to later. But I do want to enter into our discussion today um, with this question, how can we grow into who we are and give up who we're supposed to be? You know, how can we grow into who we actually are, our identity, rather than focusing so much, rather than paying so much attention to who we think we're supposed to be? Um, that's what we're going to talk about today. And so if you guys have your Bibles, let's go ahead and open them up to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 23. Matthew uh, 23. And we're going to start in verse... We're going to start in verse 23. I need a little help back there. If, uh, Matthew 23. Thank you. Um, verse 23. We'll read through verse 27. And uh, this is God's word. And it says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now this seems like a very, <laughs> it seems like a very kind of stern passage. It is, you know, it is really kind of a, a, a passage of rebuke, right, that Jesus is saying to the, the scribes and the Pharisees. This is, these are three of what are actually seven woes, and um, I kind of picked out these three you know, for a reason, because they fit thematically with what we're talking about today. But just remember this, before we even get into this, like, whenever Jesus, or whenever God, or whenever in Scripture we find these kinds of, like, rebukes, or these judgments, or warnings, now remember that when they come from a gracious God, our God, who loves us, they are not meant to kind of just tear us down, right? That's not what they're meant to be. Because really what it is, when God gives a warning, the reason he's saying that is because he wants the people who are hearing the warning to heed the warning. Like, to listen and then to say, okay, wait, what's happening here? Am I doing that? Am I in danger of doing what God is warning about? And so there's, there's really three things I would say here that we can take from this passage. It's separated into these three woes. And I will phrase them more kind of positively, like what we should do rather than what we shouldn't do. And here's the first thing I would say. 
is um, know your whys. Know your whys better than your what's. Know your whys better than your what's. What I mean is know why you do something better than what it is that you are to do. Right? And so this first section here, uh, essentially what's happening is he's saying, Look, you tithe mint and dill and cumin. And so he's talking about some of these particular specific tithes that they'll give. And these would be considered kind of minutia of the law. It's like these specific particular parts of the law. But they have neglected the weightier matters of the law, the more important, the idea, the spirit behind the law, which is justice and mercy and faithfulness. So while they have paid very close attention, while they have paid very close attention to these specific details when it comes to the law, they have neglected the big principles behind the law. Why God is giving the law in the first place. You know, ideas like justice for those who have been wronged, mercy to those who do wrong, and faithfulness to those who have departed from the faith. The the scribes and the Pharisees, they have stopped caring about those things. But they're really on it when it comes to like these, these kind of ritual religious habits. Like, okay, well, these particular small things, I need to make sure that I'm taking care of those. But they have forgotten, really, the big purpose, the big why behind the things that they do. Pay attention. Pay attention to your whys better than your what's. Now, now, Jesus doesn't say, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't know what it is you're supposed to do. Because he doesn't say that in the passage. He doesn't say, forget this tithe. You know, he doesn't say, this tithe is stupid. Who cares about the tithe? Just pay attention to justice and mercy. That's not what he says. He says, the problem is that they are paying so close attention to these little things that they're supposed to do, but they've forgotten what he calls the weightier matters of the law, the more important matters, the more important purpose that carries it. So, um... You know, uh, you know, Micah and Josiah, they're a little bit older now, right? So uh, a little while back, you know, some months ago, we're at Target. We're all at Target together, right? And uh, Micah's like, I want a game. You know, like we're in the game section. He's like, I want, I want like a game. And for me, I'm like happy when he says stuff like that because I don't just want him to like be playing with toys all the time or, um, you know, looking at whatever, like my phone or whatever. I was like, cool, you know, we can get a game. So we're trying to pick out a game that we feel like we can all play. And so we get Hungry Hippos. You guys remember, like, Hungry Hungry Hippos where you just, like, you know, it's pretty simple, right? Like, all you got to do is, like, smash on this thing, and it's basically gobbling up these little, you know, marbles or I don't know what it is now. It's like these, I don't know, it's probably some kind of very safe material, you know, that, that, that they can all grab, right? So we're like, okay, there's four things. Maybe we can all play. Even just I can play, right? So we all set it up. You know, we put it there, and we start just like, you know, immediately they just start doing this thing, and it all, everyone gets all the things, and then it's just over, right? But then it's just over, and then Micah's like, let's play again, and I'm like, we didn't play in the first place yet. Like, we haven't played. Like, we were just doing this, like, because you don't know how to play yet. Like, you don't understand this game. So we have to explain the game. Like, okay, well, here's what happens. It's like, this is, you know, this is how it happens. And the purpose of the game is to get the most, 
little balls. Whoever gets the most little balls wins. And so then we play again. And when we play again, you know, Micah gets the most because I cheat and I let him win, right? And he wins. And then, he, you know, you just tilt it a little bit towards him, right? You can't defeat gravity in this game. And so, you know, he gets all the balls. And then at the end, we count up all the balls. And he wins. And he's like, I win, you know. <laughs> and then he grabs this random, you know, thing on the side. And he's like, it's the piston cup, that, which is from Cars. He's like, it's the piston cup. I won. So he holds up the piston cup, right? And he's like, okay, I won. And then when Boomy wins... You know, he's at first he was really upset when Boomy won. He was like really mad. He's like, I don't want to play anymore. But then I explained to him, oh, it's okay. Sometimes other people win. And so, you know, he's like, okay, you know, Oma, you won. And then he gives her the piston cup. <laughs> she holds up the piston cup. And then he cheers. And he's like really excited because he understands what it means to win. Now, Josiah doesn't understand <laughs> what it means to win. So he plays. He hits the thing every time. Sometimes he even wins, actually, because this game does not require a whole lot of skill. It's pretty random. It's pretty luck-dependent. But when he wins, he doesn't know he's winning. Right? Because he doesn't really understand this game. He doesn't understand the purpose of this game. He doesn't even under really understand the rules of the game. He just, under he just knows that he's supposed to hit this thing. And I've... This is kind of what Jesus is saying, right? Because sometimes... We don't really understand, like, the purpose. Like, we don't really know what's going on, and we're just randomly doing stuff because we think that it's good or we think that it's the right thing to do. In fact, sometimes in Christianity, we are so far away from the foundations of Christianity that we weigh everything the same. Like, you know... Well, I don't think anyone would ever say this, but, like, you know, being a little late to something is the same as, like, stealing or murder or something. Now, obviously, we don't think that. But there are matters within the faith that sometimes just get really convoluted because we have failed to ask ourselves these questions of why to really understand the heart of God. And we've just jumped into these what's. But why do you do that? Uh, Just because you should, because you're supposed to. Those aren't good answers. How can we step into who God actually wants us to be rather than just who we think we're supposed to be? This is one very important thing. Pay attention to the why. Know the why better than the what. Now, the second thing here in the second woe, what I would say is, well, I'll phrase it this way. Pay attention to what you believe rather than what others believe about you. Pay attention to what you believe rather than what others believe believe about you. And he says, verse 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. 
Now, this is something, this is, Jesus is referring to kind of purity laws that require external ceremonial purification. So time and again, these Pharisees, these scribes and Pharisees, they criticize Jesus for eating with those who are ceremonially, uh, who are not ceremonially pure, ceremonially unpure, or uh, for not, for example, for not requiring his own disciples to observe certain purity laws. And he uses this cup and dish metaphor. Now, even for us, I think it's pretty easy to understand the metaphor. Right? If you're using a cup or a dish, just imagine you're on missions or something. Okay? You're out somewhere in the jungle, middle of nowhere. You know, there's not a lot of running water and stuff. And they bring you kind of a cup and a dish to use. There's food here, and you have a cup and a dish. Now, you can choose. There's one, there's one bowl where, like, the outside is really clean, but the inside is, like, really dirty. Okay, there's, like, dirt in there. There's, there's a little bit of, like, there's some guts in there. There's some, like, leftover animal from whatever, whoever was eating it before. And there's just, like, other kinds of stuff. And then there's one where the outside is really dirty, but the inside is very clean. Which one would you use? <laughs> right, you're going to eat out of this bowl. Which one would you use? Well, obviously, you're going to use the one where the inside is clean because that's really what matters. Because when you're eating out of a bowl, you don't really care what the outside looks like. Well, you probably do. I mean, yes, you'd prefer both probably to be clean. But if you had to pick one, then you'd probably pick the inside being clean because that's where the food goes and that's where you're eating out of. So even we can understand this kind of basic idea. And he's saying, look what you guys have done. You guys have focused so much on the outside of the cup and dish, which compared to the inside is really not that important. What matters is the inside. Now, obviously, at the end, you know, a a cup or a dish doesn't automatically become clean on the outside because you clean the inside. That is referring more to us, more to people. Our external actions come out of our hearts. What's inside? Even the Bible says as much, right? Things like, you know, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The things that come out of our mouths are not just random things. They come out because of what is in our hearts, So it would behoove us to pay attention to the state of our hearts more than how we appear on the outside. The state, we could call it maybe the state of our social lives, our social status. So in, in, uh, I think it was 2016 or 17 when, when this happened, but I believe it was late 2016. Uh, So Ja Rule, you know Ja Rule? (laughs) Uh, and Billy McFarlane, they introduced this new music booking app that was to revolutionize the industry. Some of you guys might know where I'm going with this. But um, so they were at this like, I don't even know these things existed, but it was like a convention for music festival people, right? And they were like introducing this app and they're like, hey, you know, it's so hard for people who are outside the industry to book um, you know, high-quality artists, right, or upper-tier or echelon artists, whatever. So Ja Rule, you know, he's on stage, and he's like, yeah, you know, so we introduced this. I, was, I almost slipped into a Ja Rule impression there, but I'm not going to do it. You know, he, you know the, we, we did this app. We created this app, and it's going to be this thing where it's like, it's like concierge, you know, booking for 
music artists. And so anybody, like, I could just pull out my phone and I could, you know, get, like, some top artist to come to my birthday party. You know, Ja Rule, my favorite artist. You know, so um, he's not my favorite artist. Um, and so everybody thought this was, like, a really great idea, right? So this was called um, the Fire App, right? And to promote this app, they said, let's have a music festival, right? So they went to the Bahamas, so what they did, actually, Ja Rule, basically just Ja Rule and his entourage, this guy, Billy McFarlane, they got a bunch of Instagram models or something, like the top Instagram models. They took them to an island in the Bahamas, and they filmed a commercial. Okay, now I don't know if you've seen this commercial. Okay, it's like this very highly uh, produced, like slickly made commercial, and they were advertising the Fire Festival, And it was billed as two immersive weekends, the best food, art, music, and adventure on an island, once owned by Pablo Escobar. If you don't know who Pablo Escobar is, he's dubbed the king of cocaine. He's a Colombian drug lord who is, like, super rich. And they're like, oh, cool, right? This is is a dream, right? Fire, it it was billed as an experience and an event to go beyond the boundaries of the impossible, Like, these words appear on the screen while an Instagram model is riding a jet ski and people are jumping off into the ocean and there's, like, an overhead camera and the the water looks pure and the font looks good and the video looks 4K and it all looks great. Like, it's amazing. Thousands of people, thousands of people spent tens of thousands of dollars to attend this music festival. So I, I watched the documentary recently and, um... It was crazy because they were, like, running out of money left and right as they were trying to plan this thing. They moved it to a different island. They started charging people extra extra thousands of dollars. Can you imagine you spend, like, almost $10,000 to go somewhere, and they're, they're calling you up asking for extra thousands of dollars of money because they were running out of money for you to put money onto this band that you would wear on your wrist that would be your currency for the entire time that you're there. Now, of course, if you know if you know anything about Fire Festival, the commercial was amazing. The reality, however, was not so amazing. Three hundred fifty people that booked lodging for this and food, and you know it's supposed to be a concert or you know a many days long concert. Uh, they didn't even have a place to stay. Three hundred fifty people. They got there, and actually, <laughs> they, what they said was it's going to be uh, luxury villas on the beach. They, that's how they advertised it. And on the website, you can see it's like a, it's like a, it's ridiculous. It just, it's, it's too good to be true. It's like glamping, you know, exponentially advanced. That's, that's what they said. There's going to be these luxury villas on the beach. What they got were hurricane relief tents left over from Hurricane Matthew. That's what they got. Remember the hurricane that hit Haiti? They had leftover relief tents, and they bought up all those and put them on the beach, and that's what people slept in. When they got there, they didn't have any luggage tag system, so everyone's luggage got thrown into a giant truck. And The night of, when they're all searching for somewhere to sleep, they just put the luggage out on the beach, and thousands of people had to just find their luggage without a tag. 
And then they didn't assign tents to anyone. So people had to go and just, it became like, it was crazy watching this documentary. It felt like the pilot of Lost. You guys know what I'm talking about? Like a plane crash and people are just finding a place to stay. They're like raiding lockers and stuff. They started like attacking each other. It was like Lord of the Flies. Like, and this was billed as a luxury experience. It was insane because I didn't realize the level of crazy that this had reached. Obviously, the whole thing fell apart. You know, nobody, all the music acts canceled. All the people had to be sent home because they didn't have lodging. But tons of locals, like, didn't get paid for their work. You know, restaurant owners, like, lost a bunch of money. And Billy McFarland went to jail. And as I was watching this documentary, it was so fascinating because I thought, it's crazy because this is one of our, like, generationally defining cultural events. You know, like, like the March on Washington or, like, Woodstock. This is our thing, Fire Festival, uh, a thing where a guy defrauded, you know, thousands of people out of millions of dollars. This is kind of the world that we live in now. Uh, advertisers stopped selling products a long time ago. They don't sell products. They sell a dream. They sell a lifestyle. It's flash over substance. It's hype over reality. In fact, um, you know, I was I was reading something uh, from a book by a woman named Jean Twang. Uh, she said that only 1% to 2% of people born before 1915 experienced a major depression during their lives. So these are people who lived through, like, the Great Depression, so literally the Great Depression, um, and, like, a couple world wars. Only 1% to 2% of these people experienced a major depression. Now, a, a survey comparing... To essentially today, I'll just say for for lack of a better, like a very specific time period, basically like today, that number's up to about 15 to 20 percent of the population who experience a major depression. Uh, Suicide factors have gone up, I think, by like a factor of 10. Uh, Anxiety, depression, loneliness are all up compared to then. And some have, some are thinking, oh, well, maybe this is just kind of research bias, or maybe it's because some of the definitions have changed. But really, uh, all all the researchers have said that that's not possible by how much it's gone up. Now, it makes you think, like, how is it that now, when mortality is, like, a lot lower, you know, when we live a lot longer, when we all have so many more luxuries than people in the past have had, as particularly people who are being compared to in this study. How is it that people are facing so much more anxiety and depression uh, and loneliness? Some people have blamed social media. Some people have blamed um, phones. Basically, one study showed that phones, basically anything on a screen, uh, video games, uh, smartphones, social media, all contribute. There, there's a strong correlation with those things and unhappiness. Now, I think all those things contribute, but I think really what underlies it in our culture is just 
this sense that we have to put out an image and it's very different from who we actually are. Like, it's hard to just fight that. It's hard when you feel like who people think you are is not who you actually are to be happy. That's a, that's a very difficult thing. And when you are so focused on the outside of the cup and dish, the perception of other people, what other people believe about you, and that is how you make your decisions. That is how you decide what you're going to do, and what you're going to eat, and what you're going to wear, and how you're going to talk, and where you're going to go, and what you have to show, and what you're committed to, and what your social obligations are. When, those are the, when that's what matters, when that's what's driving you, it's very difficult to not be depressed. It's very difficult to not feel anxious a lot of the time. It's very difficult to not feel isolated and alone. It destroys our sense of peace. It destroys our sense of community. It destroys our sense of purpose and mission. I heard one put, person put it this way, like so many people today are looking in a broken mirror a broken mirror, right? Imagine a mirror that's all cracked. And then they are trying to reconfigure their face according to what they see in the mirror. You guys know what I'm talking about? Like, if you saw a messed up reflection of yourself and then you actually tried to change your face based on what you saw in the mirror, that would lead you to a really messed up face, Pay attention to what you believe, not what people believe about you. Now, the, the third thing I'll say is very, it's similar to the second thing, but slightly, slightly nuanced. And it's going to help us to understand how to do that. Uh, here's the third thing. Pay attention to who God says you are rather than who you believe you're supposed to be. Pay attention to who God says you are, rather than who you believe you're supposed to be. So this last part, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now, it's very similar to the, to the previous, the idea, kind of this outward, inward thing going on here. Uh, it was a custom to mark tombs in burial grounds with white chalk to make them conspicuous so that people wouldn't touch them. You could not touch, um, kind of touching a dead anything was really the worst thing that you could do to make yourself kind of ceremonially unclean or unpure uh, impure. Um, but there was a practice at the time of Jesus where these ornate, it's called ossuaries, but it's these basically small bone box um, receptacles. They were made of white limestone and uh, they were used to retain the bones of, of deceased ancestors. So they would be these kind of well-made, they, like they appeared very nice on the outside and yet inside they were full of, of bones and 
while to us it doesn't hold the same, I think, the same weight, the idea of how unclean that is, uh, in Jesus' time they wouldn't understand that that is really one of the most unclean things that they could ever come in contact with. So these Pharisees, they were creating a superficial religious identity. Okay, they were creating a religious identity. And you can see this in all the passages, really. Uh, they believe that they are actually holy because of their zeal for the law. So while the previous one really is about deceiving others, there is an element here where Jesus is talking about they're kind of self-deluded, actually. It's not just what people think about you. It's actually what you think about yourself based on what people think about you. So not only that other people have begun to perceive you as holy, but there is something that happens inside of us when enough people think we're one thing. We actually believe that we're that thing. Now, I don't know if we really believe it, or maybe I don't think we really believe it. I think we are just trying to convince ourselves that we believe it when we really don't believe it. And that also causes in us this like tension between you know, who are we? Am I really this person or am I this other person that I'm supposed to be? Satan loves to hold over you this image of who you're supposed to be. Now, I know that there's a temptation to think that trying to live up to people's expectations or maybe it's a a better way to put it is our own expectations for ourselves based on what people think of us. I know that there's this idea in the back of our minds that that actually makes us better, but it doesn't. It tends to make us insecure, and that what we tend to do is we push that insecurity onto other people. When we feel like we are not meeting the expectations, we have a tendency to push back and then put those expectations on the people around us. I do this all the time. Like when I make a mistake, my first inclination is not to admit the mistake that I've made. It is to find reasons as to why that mistake took place. Like why did this happen? For some of us, that uh, self-justification is the first place we go. For uh, For others of us, we might feel repentant initially, but then we start to rationalize it. Like why our mistake was actually good in the long run or why, you know, actually they're the ones who made the mistake. Like I'm not the one who actually did something wrong. You're the one who did something wrong. And here's all the reasons why. And we kind of go back and then we relitigate and we change history sometimes so that it all makes sense to us. Now the world's, everyone feels this insecurity, by the way, everyone in the world. Right? And the world's solution to this insecurity, this self-doubt, is that line from the movie. Everyone fails at being who they're supposed to be. The measure of a person, of a hero, is how well they succeed at being who they are. The culture at large loves that sentiment. Be true to yourself. That's the only way to get through life. Now, I slightly disagree. <laughs> Let me tell you why. Uh, this can get weird, right? Uh, in in, t- in t- 2018, uh, this man named Akihiko Kondo, 
a Japanese school administrator, married a hologram. He married cyber celebrity Hatsume Miku in front of 36 people. I saw this. He walked down the aisle with a hologram. That's about this big. That's inside a thing. That's right here, like on his shelf. That's who he's married to. Right? And this was on CNN. I saw this story. He said, uh, well, this is how the story read. It's a somewhere dumbfounded by his choice of a three-dimensional laser image over a human. Yeah. Others congratulated him, but the 35-year-old whose Spartan home on the outskirts of Tokyo is dotted with plush Miku dolls and paraphernalia doesn't care what others think. He simply did what made him happy. And here's his quote. Society pressures you to follow a certain formula for love, but it might not make you happy. I want people to be able to figure out what works for them. Uh, Some, I don't know, social experts, I guess, have called this second wave digisexuals. People who see technology as integral to their sexual identity. And let let me just say this. Read this last part, okay? It says, while first-wave digisexuals use technologies like dating apps to leverage and facilitate connections with others, second-wave digisexuals don't see humans as essential to a romantic experience. Did you guys hear what I just said? These people, they don't see humans as essential to a romantic experience. No, (laughs) I'm sorry, but no, that's not okay. That's, that's crazy. Like, you can't, we can't just be like, all right, well, there, it doesn't matter, right? Whatever works for you is what works for you, and that's cool. No, so while I love the line from the movie, I would make one amendment. Rather than trying to succeed at being who you are, trust in who God says you are. Rather than looking deep into your heart to discover where your true self is. And look, I'm not saying that there is nothing inside that tells you who you are. Of course there is. Right? Of course there are things that make us uniquely us. But what we must understand is that God has put those things there and for a purpose. Let me tell you what the... Bible says about you, who you are. This is from 1 Corinthians 6, 9. It says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. It says, yes, this is what many of us were. But it's not who you are. If you are in Christ, yes, such were some of you, but you were washed. You have been washed, you have been sanctified, you have been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. 
This is John 1. It says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. If you are in Christ, you are a child of God, chosen by God of his will. This is 1 Peter 2. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You were washed and sanctified and justified. You are made new and whole, not because of religious practices or rituals. But the practices and the rituals are meant to point us back to Christ himself, who is the one, the reason we have been forgiven, who can heal us, who is in the process of remaking you, who is growing you, who calls you his child, his own. He calls you his chosen one, his instrument. He calls you his priest. He calls you his own possession, a part of a holy nation and a people for his own possession. That's who you are in Christ. That's who God wants you to be. And that's who God makes you into. See, we don't make ourselves into that. It's not about our our effort, although certainly we should exercise, you know, God-enabled, spirit-enabled effort. But it's really about what God does. He transforms us to be something we cannot imagine ourselves to be. Let me give you a couple, couple quick application points. Uh, first thing, just two quick ones. One, seek accountability to the gospel rather than connectedness. Seek accountability to the gospel rather than connectedness. Seeking accountability to the gospel, what I, and what I mean by that is seek people who will, together with you, pursue the gospel. That's it. Right? Because I think accountability becomes this, like, word where it's like, oh, well, you know, I got to start paying money to a jar, you know, or something like that. Or there has to be, like, punishments, you know, or something. Like, no, no, no. It's just people who are going to walk with you in the gospel. And just remind you, because you're going to doubt yourself at times. Right? Or you're going to feel ashamed or guilty or like you have to go back to law and be like, well, I have to make something of myself at times. That's going to happen. You're going to feel that temptation. You're going to feel like you want to run away or hide. And what you want are people in your life who are going to still just remind you and say, hey, well, no, you know, because it's not about that. It's not about you and me. It's about Jesus and what he's done for us. That Nothing can change that. No matter what you do, that can't change. It's already happened. The church is meant to be a planting ground. A planting ground, not a proving ground. Oftentimes what happens is we start to evaluate each other and be like, oh, well, how's, you know, is this guy doing good? Is that person doing well? How well is this person doing or that person doing? It's like it's not what it's about. Right? We should be planting seeds of the gospel in each other. That's really what allows God to grow us and to change us. 
the second application point I would give, and it's very simple. It's just, it's just, it's just pray. It's pray. Um, this is a quote from a book of prayer. I'm reading two books on prayer right now. It's really good. Um, this is from Tim Keller. It says, uh, when your prayer life finally begins to flourish, the effects can be remarkable. You may be filled with self-pity and be justifying resentment and anger. Then you sit down to pray, and the, re- the reorientation that comes before God's face reveals the pettiness of your feelings in an instant. All your self-justifying excuses fall to the ground in pieces. Or you may be filled with anxiety, and during prayer you come to wonder what you were so worried about. You laugh at yourself and thank God for who he is and what he's done. It can be that dramatic. It is the bracing clarity of a new perspective. Eventually, this can be the normal experience, but that is never how the prayer life starts. In the beginning, the feeling of poverty and absence usually dominates, but the best guides for this phase urge us not to turn back, but rather to endure and pray in a disciplined way until, as Packer and Nistrum say, we get through duty to delight. Prayer is, is powerful. You know, and prayer allows us to examine our inner life instead of focusing on our outer life. I would just encourage you, you know, just spend some time talking to God every day. It's like, God, you know, what's, and if you don't know what to pray, that's totally fine. Just be like, God, what is going on with me right now? Like, what's going on in my heart? And he will speak to you. In fact, well, I want us to spend some time in prayer right now. Um. And I just want to, you know, offer us some time. Let's, let's just go to God. And this is like one of the great things about this time, you know, on Sunday is when we're here is because like our phones aren't out for the most part, you know, and um, we can be focused and we can really just even hear like our inner voice, what's happening in our heart. We can hear, we can be more receptive to hear what the Spirit is saying to us. You know, and so I just want to encourage you to spend some time talking to God about who He says you are. And spending some time, yeah, you can just turn that off. And spend some time just kind of stepping into that. And so let's just spend some time just kind of praying on our own. Um, Yeah, let's pray.